Thank you for tuning in to the Living Hope Church podcast. This is a free resource given to you uh, for your benefit and for your faith to be grown in the Lord. So we encourage you, if you are a Living Hope Church member, to share this podcast, to share these sermons, if they have fueled your faith in any way. And if you are not a Living Hope Church member, we pray and encourage you to stay and remain faithful in a local body, a local church for the building of the body, and that this would only be a supplement for your faith. But we do pray that this encourages you in your faith, all for His glory and for His name's sake. Thank you for tuning in, and let's get into the sermon. So, uh, so today, so last week, uh, I spoke on faith. If you tuned in last week, I spoke on faith, what biblical faith is, um, and that it's not attached from uh, the things that we're going through right now. It's not attached from our current human struggle, um, and more specifically, not detached from this pandemic that's happening around the world. And we kind of dove into that. We kind of talked about what biblical faith is and talked about how to exercise it practically in our time that we're living in right now. And I want to keep going on kind of this thought of uh, what we are necessarily supposed to do in times of crisis. What are we supposed to do? And so if you have your Bible, I hope you do, uh, you should. I mean, if you're new and you're not a Christian, you probably don't have a Bible, but you can always download a Bible on the phone. Um, But if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts 16, and then once you get there, put your bookmark, uh, phone, whatever, put it right there to let it hold for you, and then turn with me to Philippians 4. So we're going to be in two passages today, and our main text is going to be in Philippians, and then we're going to go to Acts 16 a little later. Um, And so, Philippians chapter 4. And I want to start with this. There's no doubt that, um, that we're living through something we've never experienced before. We are going through, I was talking with my wife about this the other day. Um, she's a healthcare worker, she's a nurse, she's an infection control nurse, so this is like huge um, for our world, it was especially for her. Um, but I was talking to her about this the other day and I, I said, you know, this, this moment that we're living in right now, future generations are gonna be in school in history class and they're gonna read this moment in history books. This is a very important moment that we are in right now. And we've never experienced it before. We've never experienced having to, like, across the U.S. work from home, uh, isolate, quarantine, social distance. That's all new. I don't, I mean, especially for me, I'm 30, almost 30, never had to do that ever in my entire life. Something we've never done or experienced before. And I kind of want us to ponder this question today. How does God want his church to be during this time? How does God desire us to be during times of crisis? How does God want us to be all the time as the church, but more specifically, how does he want us to be during this time of pandemic and crisis and worry and anxiety and all of this other stuff? Um, Many Christians through history have asked this question. Um, I think of Martin Luther. I think of uh, in 1527, during the bubonic plague that was sweeping through Europe, Martin Luther was living through that, the famous reformer who started the Protestant Reformation. And Christians in his day were asking him, what do we do? What do we do to be the church in this time? And this is what he said. He said, very well, by God's decree, the enemy has sent us poison and deadly offal. Therefore, I ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to not become contaminated and thus pre-chance infect and pollute others. And so maybe cause their death or as a result of my negligence cause their death. 
If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. And I have done what he has expected of me. And so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. That is what the reformer Martin Luther said during his pandemic. How do we respond as Christians? We listen to the experts. We listen to the healthcare workers. We do what they want us to do, but we don't cease in being the church. We don't cease on being a loving neighbor to our neighbors in whatever safe way that we can be. And I don't have time to talk about uh, the development of the atomic bomb in 1948 when famous author C.S. Lewis was going through this and the Christians of his day were asking him the very same question. Or even during the heavy persecutions under Emperor Nero in AD the 60s when he was persecuting Christians and throwing them in the Colosseums and the Christians were spreading out and wondering, what do we do in this? Or even about the great famine uh, that happened in Greece and in the city of Corinth, which was during the time that the Corinthians uh, letters were written by Paul. Christians asking, what do we do? This, this question is, has been asked throughout all of history. And so, though we've never experienced coronavirus before like this, this is nothing new to the church. The church has always gone through trial, tribulation, persecution, pandemic, famine, all of this stuff has always, the church has always gone through it. This is nothing new for God's church. And so we're asking the question that many Christians have asked throughout all of history, how does God want his church to be during this time? That's a very important question because God wants us to be a certain people. He wants us to be a certain people in this time. He doesn't want us to be slack. He doesn't want us to be lazy. He doesn't want us to be disengaged. He wants us to be a certain type of people during this time. And so today, I want to look at three aspects that I believe the church has maintained throughout all of history, um, and that I believe that the Lord wants us to be during this time. And I believe if we grasp these aspects, if we take them seriously, we don't let it just blow over our head, but we take them seriously, I really believe that even more than just encouraging us as believers, I really, really believe that God will empower his church to actually live out the way that he wants us to live, even during a pandemic, during this time of crisis. And so let us turn to Philippians 4. We're going to be in chapters 2 through 9, chapters or uh, verses, verses 2 through 9. <clears throat> we're going to read through the whole text, and we're going to circle back, and we're going to... Uh, pick out these highlighted things that I think Paul and the Lord is, is really speaking to us about. So starting in verse 2, Paul says this. He says, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Sintiq to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, and whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let me just read that last sentence again because I think we need it and I need it 
the God of peace will be with you. He will be with us. The God of peace is with us. And so in this particular passage, Paul begins to encourage uh, the Philippian church. So um, he's writing to Christians in a city called Philippi, a Roman colony. Um, And during this time, they're going through some persecutions, and they never ceased in giving to Paul and his ministry. Paul is writing from Rome uh, in a prison, and, and he's writing, and he had received gifts from the Philippian church, and he's writing in response to those gifts. And this is a joy-filled letter of just love for the, the Christians of that church, and Paul is expressing that. And he begins to encourage them with one of the most beautiful exhortations in all of the New Testament. I mean, this passage, pastors all over the world are preaching from this passage because of the power that is in it. This is truth that is powerful. And I believe that in this encouragement, we find God's desire for how he wants his church to be, especially in times of crisis. And so the first aspect I want to highlight in this text is this, that we would be co-laborers in the gospel, co-laborers working together in the gospel. Look at verses two and three. Paul says this, he says, I entreat Eudia, which Eudia and Cintiq were two women in the Philippian church, um, and it seems uh, that they had a disagreement on something, right? And then Paul is encouraging the person delivering this letter to help them to reconcile. So he says, I entreat Eudia and Cintiq to agree in the Lord, reconcile. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me together in the gospel with Clement, who was another person and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. In Philippians 2, we find that this true companion that Paul is speaking of, his name is Epaphroditus, and he was one of uh, Paul's co-workers, and he got very ill and almost died. We read in chapter 2, and he ends up getting better, and Paul sends him with this letter to the Philippian church. And so he's telling Epaphroditus, help these women to reconcile Uh, because these women have labored with me in the gospel. And so Paul starts by affirming who the people who have labored with him in this this gospel, in the mission of the gospel. He mentions Eudias and Tiek, Clement, Epaphroditus, right? Paul is highlighting this idea of being on mission together for the gospel, being totally on mission together for the gospel right? Everybody. Like, he has so many workers. I mean, if you go through Acts, you will see so many people who work with Paul. Everybody was on mission for the gospel. And this sometimes kind of goes over our head. It doesn't, it doesn't hit us with the full weight of what Paul is saying, right? Sometimes, because if we're honest, if, if you're like me, a human, which I'm sure you all are, you all are human, uh, this sometimes... Uh, doesn't, doesn't connect with us because sometimes church just simply becomes a routine, right? Like Sunday. Like Sunday is for church and then the rest of the week is for work and family and all these other things that we have going on. And we kind of uh, compartmentalize church into another section uh, that's different than work and then family and then uh, marriage and uh, time at with Kathy's house and having dinner, whatever it is, all of it's kind of in these sections here, and church is over here that's kind of disconnected from these other things. And maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe that makes no sense to you at all. Maybe you you don't struggle with that because you don't go to church if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, uh, maybe this doesn't really connect with you in this sense that uh, church becomes routine because you don't go to church often. Um, but maybe for you, uh, it, it hits a little bit because you've always seen church as just this huge social gathering for a bunch of people that think alike and like this man named Jesus, right? You maybe have been to a church or watched church and you see a bunch of people who are gathering in a room and are raising their hands, right? And we're looking at these screens with lyrics on it, and it looks like we're singing to the walls because 
we don't, Jesus is not physically here. And so for you, maybe that's just weird to think about that an entire group of people being on mission for the gospel together, that we're all involved in this. Maybe for you, that's a little different and it's a little confusing. I think in both, the Bible pushes back against this idea that church is just some separate thing that we do in our week. Constantly, the Bible pushes back on this and and consistently says, no, 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 no. Church is the main priority, not the building church. Being the church is the main priority. The mission of the church is the main priority that should orient your entire life, work, family, marriage, friends, all that stuff is not set up in lists, but should kind of orient around the mission of the church. That's how the Bible talks of the mission of the church. Paul highlights this a little bit deeper in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians um, in chapter 12. If you remember, we went through uh, 1 Corinthians, through the whole book with Pastor Matt, And uh, in chapter 12, we talked about how every person who comes to Jesus receives a spiritual gift. And what is the spiritual gift given for? To build the church, right? To build the church and to extend God's kingdom. That is the goal of getting the gift. It's not just for us. And Paul goes on later in chapter 12 to compare the church to that of a living body, right? He goes, the, the church is not just some inanimate building, but it's actually a living organism full of people who are working together to continue to keep the body working. And he gives us spiritual gifts to do that. And so God wants us, Paul is bringing out here, God wants us to co-labor for the mission of the gospel. Not just let the pastor do it or the worship team or the leader or the prayer leader but every single person involved in calling themselves a follower of Jesus is called to co-labor in the gospel. Now, naturally, we must ask, what is the mission of the gospel? What exactly is the main mission of the gospel? Is it to get more people to come to our churches? No, but that's a good thing. We want more people to hear about Jesus. Is it for people to ultimately just make a decision to follow Jesus? We want that. We want people to turn and repent from sin. But the main mission of the gospel in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is this, that we go and we make disciples. We don't let it just stop with a person raising their hand to receive Jesus and then letting it be like that and then letting them just kind of figure it out on their own. God calls us, followers of Jesus, to actually help people fall in love with a God they can't see, yet they decided to follow him. That's how one of my mentors put put it. He asked me, he said, has anyone taught you to fall in love with a God you can't see, that you can't touch, that you can't hug, that you can't uh, kind of like physically show affection to, like we usually do in our personal relationships? How do you fall in love with a God you can't see? And that's the goal of every, that's the goal of the mission of the church is to help people fall in love with a God they can't see, but they've chosen to believe in him because they've seen his power and his redemptive power. And then they are supposed to go and help people to do the same thing. That is the mission of the church. And I consistently have to remind myself of that just, just for you today. Um, so I just want to just say the mission of our life as a follower of Jesus is to make disciples, to preach the gospel and make disciples. Everything else revolves around that. Everything else revolves around that mission. And Paul is bringing that out. He's affirming that in the people that have worked with him in this passage. And so as we move on, Paul highlights a second aspect that I believe God wants his church to be during times of crisis. And it's this, that we would be people of peace. That we would be people of peace. Look at verses 4 through 7. Philippians 4 through 7, he says this. Rejoice in the Lord. Stop. Notice how he says, where is the rejoicing rooted in? It's rooted in the Lord, not in circumstance. I think a lot of times when we think of rejoicing, how in the world can I rejoice during a global pandemic? This is crazy, right? 
But people can rejoice because if you are rooted in the Lord, you have reason to rejoice. That's outside of your circumstances. That transcends your circumstances. And that is why Paul says again, rejoice. He's, he's telling them, do it. Like, come on. Like, you, you can do this because God is good and he doesn't change. And he doesn't shift with circumstance, right? So then he goes on in verse 5 and says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness meaning gentleness. This is another word. To, uh, maybe some of your Bible says it like that. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Here we go. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's very interesting the way Paul is talking about peace right here. Because I think, I think for us, I'm speaking about myself uh, primarily, but I think for us, sometimes when we think about peace, we think about peace only in terms of how we're feeling, right? When I'm praying, like, Lord, I am freaking out right now because I don't know how this is going to turn out. Um, I'm worried about all these other things, and I'm praying. I'm saying, Lord, please give me peace. Take my anxiety. Give me peace, please. And usually when I'm praying that, I'm, my motive is that the Lord would help me to feel peace, which is totally biblical. God calls us to lay down our anxieties before him, and he will give us his light yoke and light load and will give us peace. In John 14, Jesus says, I give you peace. I give peace to you. Um, but Paul is speaking about peace in a very particular, very unique way in this passage. Paul speaks of peace as that of a guardian. A guardian. The word that he's using for guard is a very specific word in the Greek. And the image is this. It's a, it, the image is that of a legion of soldiers surrounding a city guarding the city from oncoming invasion. That's the picture that Paul is trying to paint with peace. Quite literally, Paul is saying, peace will guard your minds and your hearts from the oncoming invasion of anxiety and worry that's happening around you. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. It's standing there guarding your heart and your mind from being affected and influenced by the anxiety around you. Not saying that you won't feel it, not saying that you won't see it, but peace will guard you from it. Ultimately, peace can do this because peace isn't just only something God gives. It is something God gives, but it's not all it is. Peace ultimately is who God is. God is a peaceful God. If you look at, if you jump down to verse 9, right, Paul says it like this. He says, practice these things and the God of peace. He doesn't just say the peace of God like earlier, but he switches and says, and the God of peace, meaning he's trying to highlight that peace is rooted in God's essence. God is a God of peace. And so we can have peace. Peace can guard us from these other things because God himself is with us and he is the God of peace, right? I think, I think we have to remind ourselves, and I have to do this often. I have to do this often. And I think we have to do this often as well. Every day is remind ourselves of this powerful truth. God has never, ever been in a state of confusion, disorder, or unrest. God has never, ever been in that state before. He has always been in perfect peace in every single circumstance. God is never surprised. He is never anxious or worried about any situation at all times. He is completely sovereign over everything. Nothing happens without him knowing about it. So he's never taken aback by things. He 
He's always a God of peace and pure peace. That pure peace will guard us, Paul says, as we remain in Jesus, right? Pastor Matt, abide or die. Abide in Jesus, John 15. As we do that, the peace of God will guard our hearts. The pure peace of God. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that as with anything in the Bible that talks about things that we receive from God, it doesn't just stop with the receiving, right? Matthew 28, we receive Jesus, but what, is it, what, is, what does Jesus tell us to do? Go and give me to people, and then teach them how to give me to other people, right? As with our finances and the things that we give, God, our, God blesses us with things, and then he wants us to give and keep it going and do this this motion, this cycle of receiving and giving and receiving and giving. It's the same thing with this peace. God doesn't want us just to receive peace and then just kind of hold it here, but God wants us to actually give peace to the disorder that is around us. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 5, uh, verse 9, right? Matthew 5. Jesus' first sermon, right, coming out of the wilderness, his first sermon on a mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And and in this section, we call it the Beatitudes. There's like, blessed is he, blessed is the poor in spirit, blessed is the persecuted, blessed, blessed, blessed. And then he gets to a point in verse 9 where he says this, "Blessed blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God or people of God. Peacemakers. Right? And I've always been confused at, at that one. I, I was just, you know, he's going through all these things, and it's like, peacemakers? Uh, I don't even know what that really means. What do you mean? Um, I think a great example of this, for us to kind of understand what it means to be a peacemaker, I think a great example of this is in Acts 16. So if you remember, you placed your hand in Acts 16, well, now we're going to go back to it. So in Acts 16... We find a very interesting story with Paul and a coworker named Silas, right? And I'm just going to sum it up really fast for you, uh, just like really fast, uh, because there's a lot that happens before we get to the, the verse that we're going to be in. We're going to be in verses 25 through 34. Uh, but in chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas, his coworker, are called to the city of Philippi. So this is the first time Paul is going into the city of Philippi. And when they get there, they meet a woman named Lydia. And she is uh, this flourishing business owner. And she's powerful. And she's the first person in Philippi to accept the gospel. Right? And then after she accepts the gospel, they go on to go to the place of prayer. They're just kind of going their way. They run into this slave girl or this uh, worker who is a witch Right? She does witchcraft and fortune telling, and uh, she makes money off of it for her owners. And uh, she's just kind of following Paul and Silas around and kind of saying all this, this stuff. And this is funny, but Paul actually gets annoyed to the point that he turns around and casts the demon out of her. Right? It's just, I'm so annoyed with you just saying this stuff. Get out of her. And then, boom, cuts off all income for the owners. So the owners find out, get mad kidnap Paul and Silas, bring them before the officials. They beat them, strip them, throw them into an inner prison where they then shackle their hands and their feet to the walls. That's the situation that Paul and Silas are in during this part in the text where we're getting to. If you're asking me, that is chaotic. That is just great. I'm just on my way to place a prayer and then boom, I'm kidnapped and beaten and then flogged and thrown into a dirty, nasty prison where I'm chained to the wall. This is a moment to be worried, okay? Because most likely if you end up in a Roman prison, the end of that is execution. That's just usually the end result. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 25, and we're going to read all the way through to verse 34. And this is what the writer of Acts, who is Luke, one of the apostles or one of the followers of Jesus, he says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, and so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. 
And immediately all of the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the, that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice and said, do not harm yourself for we are all here. None of us have left. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your entire household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them. That same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his entire family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household because he had believed in God. Believed in God. Now, if you're reading, if you just read, or if you just heard me kind of summarize that story, that is a very intense, very Crisis moment for Paul and Silas. They're captured, thrown into prison, probably going to be executed in the next few hours. And what are they doing? The Bible says, Luke says, they're praying and singing hymns to God. They're at total peace in this chaos. And, and what's interesting is that Luke even makes it a point to mention that the jailers were actually listening in on the prayer and the hymns. So the, pe the people in the jail outside of Paul and Silas are at peace. The jail is not, the people in the jail are not freaking out. They, the, the people in the jail are not worried right now, even though they're, cri they're in a crisis right now. And though Paul and Silas are in the midst of a crisis, they were at total peace praying and singing hymns to God because they knew that the peace of God was with them in this. God did not abandon them or leave them, but actually it was God's will that they would be there for the salvation of that jailer and his entire household. So, so check it out. They had peace with God, right? They knew who God was. They knew he was the God of peace. They were in Jesus. They had peace, vertical peace, with God. They were having peace in their souls, and it was actually kind of pouring over into the jail to where the jailers, who don't even know Jesus, were at peace. They weren't freaking out. But then a situation erupts, earthquake, miracle happens, doors open, jailer freaks out and almost commits suicide, falls before the feet of Paul and Silas, asking, what do I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas speak peace to him. They had the vertical peace established with God. They knew who they were in God. They knew God was with them. And how that happened is they let it pour over even onto another person's soul. He spoke the peace of God to the jailer. They spoke the comfort of God, the truth that God was with them, the compassion, grace, and mercy that Jesus preached and told them to preach about, they told that to the jailer and communicated peace to where the jailer then had peace in his soul. And his entire household was saved. And he received the gospel. In Romans 10, 17, it says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. How do we... How does God want us to bring peace into a situation? I believe that he wants us to show works. I believe he wants us to care for our neighbor. But I also believe he wants us to be vocal about the peace that we have in Jesus. When people are worried, when people are freaking out or panicking, God wants us to speak. He wants us to speak to the people around us and communicate why we have peace on top of helping our neighbor, being there for our neighbor, getting groceries for our elderly friends. On top of that, we are to speak the peace of God. Not just have it here, but let it go horizontally and speak it. Christ wants his church to be 
on mission for the gospel together as co-laborers in the gospel and to be a people of peace, speaking the word of God into the disorder and chaos that's happening around us. God doesn't want us to just be a people at peace with him. He wants us also to be a people of peace, letting it overflow into our situation, into our families, into our coworkers' lives, into our friends' lives. He wants us, he wants it to overflow into the situation of chaos and disorder, right? So co-laboring for the gospel. God wants us as a church to co-labor together. We are in this together as a church. It's nothing new for God's church. God is using his church in this time. He wants us to be a people at peace with him and a people of peace, continuing to pour out that same peace that we have with God to our context, to, to where we are with our family and our friends and whatever our proximity is, communicating that peace, peace with others. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, Christ wants his church to be a people of prayer. A people of prayer. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Philippians. We're back, we're back at Philippians. Look, we're going through the whole, like, so much of the Bible right now. Philippians 6 and 7 says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by what? Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Don't just keep it here, but make it known to God. He knows about it, but make it known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, right? So the peace of God, the co-laboring, is all rooted in one thing, prayer. Prayer. And I think, and I found this in my own life, and so I can't speak for everyone else, but in my own life, what I've noticed is that prayer tends to be the aspect of my Christian life that tends to be the most neglected, right? In our walk with Jesus, we want to do this, and we want to go to Bible study, we want to do this, we want to go and serve in this way, which is all good things, but the most neglected thing I've found in church and in the culture of church is prayer. Prayer is often the most neglected, yet it is the most important aspect of the Christian life. Famous theologian R.C. Sproul said it like this. He said, I have always been amazed that the disciples didn't ask Jesus how to walk on water or how to still the tempest or how to do any of his other miracles. They did, however, ask Jesus to teach them about prayer. Note that they did not ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. Instead, they begged, teach us to pray. I'm certain that the disciples clearly saw, right here, get this, that the disciples clearly saw the inseparable relationship between the power that Jesus manifested and the hours he spent in solitude conversing with his Father. Prayer was the most important thing for Jesus. He, he just consistently went in solitude and conversed with his Father. And the disciples saw that and asked them, teach us to pray. And the reality is this, we cannot effectively co-labor for the gospel together. And we cannot be a people at peace with God and a people who are peacemakers, bringing peace into disorder. We can't do any of that if we're not first a people of prayer. A people of prayer. The peace that Paul and Silas had and brought to the jailer and the wonderful moment of the jailer receiving the gospel, the peace of his soul, are both directly linked to their time in prayer in the prison. Luke makes it a point to mention that they were praying and singing hymns to God, and then after that, these things followed. Peace in the jail, peace to the jailer. Boom, it was just from the place of prayer that all of these other things kind of rippled effect and went out. And I think the reason why sometimes, for what I found in my life, the reason why prayer tends to be um, one of the most neglected things in our life 
is because it feels inactive. It feels like we're not doing anything, right? It, we're, we're kind of just, we're sitting there and all of the, life is still happening and it, it feels inactive, it feels unproductive to us in our flesh, right? And the way our life has been uh, kind of structured in its rhythm with scheduling and having a busy schedule and stuff, it, it makes it hard for us to actually be still before the Lord. Like it's hard for us to actually be still because we're so used to being busy all of the time. We're so used to being busy all of the time. And that's why uh, some of us are actually maybe going a little bit crazy in this quarantine social distancing because we're like, what do I do? I don't know what, I can't go to the mall, I can't do this thing, I can't go to work, I can't be out there. And we're going crazy in our minds because we're like, I don't know how to live my life without doing things. And I think Jesus wants to use this moment. Now, I'm not, I'm not like um, uh, undervaluing like the intense moment that we're in right now. But I really think Jesus wants to use this moment to actually help us to learn to just be still. This is something we have to learn because we're so used to having a full schedule. We actually have to learn to be still, Psalm 46, before the Lord and know that he is God. I was on a walk with my wife. Uh, my wife and I tend to, like after work, we get home. Uh, one of the first things we do uh, is go for a walk together. We didn't do it much in the wintertime because, you know, snow and cold and all. But now that it's springtime, uh, we tend to just go on a walk. And usually we go to the metro parks where it's beautiful. But the other day we went and there were loads of people. I've never seen the park that packed before. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, you guys are like not going to work in gatherings more than 10, but you all are at the park. You're completely defeating the purpose of what's going on. So we didn't go to the park. Um, so we've just been walking around our apartment complex and kind of walking on the main street. And usually around that time, it's loaded with traffic. I mean, it's so loud I could barely hear my wife speak when we're kind of just going over our days and stuff. But the other day we took a walk, we're going down the street, and I was actually taken aback at how quiet it was. I mean, there was a car here and there, but I was just like hit with like, it is still right now. And I was just kind of, I was just like, wow, like God, the world has just kind of like stilled. Like things are still happening, not to say that like nothing is happening, but things have been still. There's no sports, there's no restaurants, there's no uh, anything else that we would use to distract ourselves from prayer. I think Jesus wants to teach us to pray, as the disciples asked him. Teach us to pray, Lord. Okay, let's be still. Let's start here. And it's main truth here, it is, it is from the place of prayer and communion with God that we are empowered to be the church in the time of crisis. It is from the place of prayer. And if you don't know what prayer is, prayer is just simply communicating with the God we've chosen to follow and the God we love. I heard a, I heard a person talk about prayer this way, where uh, if we don't have an appetite to pray, we need to pray more. Because we only gain an appetite from prayer by praying more. You don't gain an appetite by, for prayer by like not praying. Like you just gain an appetite to not pray anymore. We pray and it builds in us an appetite for more prayer. And it's a learned skill to actually stay still before the Lord. And so I want to close with this. I want to close with the last verses that he says in this section, starting in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4. Paul says this, and I want this to, I want you to close your eyes and let this wash over you just in this time of crisis. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely or commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. 
what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Right now, we are being forced to be still. Our situation is forcing us to be still. And I think Jesus wants to use that to teach us to pray, to teach us to commune with the Father. I think Jesus is trying to teach us to do the most active thing that we could possibly do as the church, which hits up against us because we love doing church things. We feel like we're doing much more when we're actually engaged in doing things but actually the most active thing that we can do is pray to God and commune with the Father. Because I could do a bunch of stuff with a wrong motivation and it could just completely be worthless. I could do a bunch of stuff in my own strength and it could fall flat on my face. But if I do things from a place of prayer and abiding with Jesus, the fruit will last. The fruit will last because it's done in his strength, not mine. Jesus wants to teach us to be still, and Paul is encouraging the Philippians and us to dwell and meditate on all things good, beautiful, commendable, uh, all things worthy of praise. Ponder God. Dwell on God. Dwell on these things. Another way of thinking about dwelling, what do you think of when, when you hear the word dwell? We think of think, but we also think of live, right? This is my dwelling place. The idea is that remain in those things. Remain, remind yourselves. 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive under the authority of Jesus. Dwell on these things. These things, true, beautiful, commendable, praiseworthy. Dwell on those things. And then I'll close with this. 19th century pastor E.M. Bounds said this about the church, and I think it completely relates to us, even though we're so many years ahead. And I want to leave you with this, and I want to encourage you to think about it throughout the week. He says this, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but people the Holy Ghost can use, people of prayer, people mighty in prayer, the Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through people. He does not come on machinery, but on people. He does not anoint plans, but he anoints people, people of prayer. I think God wants to communicate to us that he wants to use his church in this time of crisis. But the only way that we're going to be used effectively in co-labor for the gospel, and the only way that we're going to be used to usher in peace, not only into our own souls, but into the situation that's around us, is if we take seriously the command to pray and to rest and be still in the Lord. And as we do that, just like Paul and Silas in the jail, we will be able to actually bring peace to people who are restless and anxious and don't have the hope that we have in Jesus. The jailer was scared and anxious and afraid, and he was longing for an answer on how to solve that. And Paul and Silas communicated the peace of their souls, which is Jesus, to the jailer, and that jailer received the gospel. And for you right now, if you're not a Christian, that is what God is calling you to, is the peace of God in Christ Jesus, that you would come to believe the gospel and have peace in your soul, which will then erupt to peace in the rest of your life. And so I'll, I'm going to pray. And uh, after I pray, I'll cut the live stream. And I encourage you guys, go in, listen to the music on the uh, uh, worship set. You know, if you've got to clean the house, play that. Be in a time of prayer and in a time of worship before the Father. Commune with the Father. Take time with your family to just be still. We're not going anywhere. We don't have things to go to right now. Be still before the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, thank you 
Thank you so much for your peace. God, thank you that we can have the purest of peace and even the most chaotic of situations because you are the God of peace, the Prince of Peace. It is who you are. And you have given us your Holy Spirit. You are not only with us, but you are in us, Jesus. And so this peace is a very real peace, a promise that we have in you. God, and you want us as the church to be able to usher that peace into the situations of chaos and disorder around us in our families and with our friends and with the people that we know. God, you want us to do that, communicate the peace of God to the people that we love, to the people who ask, Jesus, would you give us boldness to trust you in this time? Give us a boldness to trust that you are at work in this time. Though we do not see your work right offhand, but we trust, we look past the situation as I talked about last week and look at the stuff that's going on behind, what faith helps us to look at, the things unseen. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and your mercy in Jesus. Thank you that you, Jesus, call us to a place of rest at your feet, that you actually care for your children when they are restless. You care for us, God. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember that you have not abandoned us to a broken world. You are involved in the broken world and you are working through your church, God. Help us to be reminded of that, Lord, because we are fragile. We are human. And I love how the psalmist says that you remember our frame and you remember that we are just dust. You remember how fragile we are, Lord. So we pray and ask for your Holy Spirit to empower us as your church to be at peace with you and to be peacemakers in this situation and to be a people of prayer that we would not no longer, that we would no longer neglect prayer but that you would grow our appetite for prayer as we continue to pray. And that we would realize that, man, prayer, communion with the Father, gives us everything that we need. And God will add all of our uh, material needs on top of that. So thank you, Jesus. We submit to you today. And uh, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless us in the days to come, protect us in the days to come, protect every member, listener, attender of this live stream. God, that you would shield the healthcare workers and bring peace to the healthcare systems. Father, that you would give us the wisdom that you gave Solomon when he asked, Lord, I don't know how to lead your people. Help me to lead in wisdom. And so we ask for that same wisdom, Lord in this time, and give us peace, Jesus. And we say this in your almighty name. Amen.